Welcome to the Parker Avery Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit parkeravery.com. This is Trisha Gustin, Senior Director of Marketing for the Parker Avery Group. This week, I am joined by Parker Avery CEO, Robert Kaufman, along with Senior Manager, John Lawing. We are taking a deep dive into the product development process and supporting PLM systems based on their decades of experience helping Parker Avery clients enhance this key functional area. We will explore best practices and innovations that retailers and brands should be considering, as well as common pitfalls to avoid. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me on a Friday afternoon and ready to talk all things product development. Absolutely. For sure. All right. We're going to start off with kind of a basic question, but just to level set the conversation, let's talk about what product development is and what roles are involved. So I'd really like to split it into two questions. First, what is it? And then the second part is, is the more complicated part of who does it? So first off, and in my experience, the simplest of terms is it is the genesis and design of new products on its way to be purchased by a company to be sold to a, to a consumer, right? So it's really the creation of the product and determining the design of that product and working with suppliers to build that product. It's also, as you alluded to, it's the beginning of the life cycle of a product So a lot of what we do at Parker Avery is not just bring products to market, which is really what product development is about, but through its entire life cycle. And so this is the beginning of that, of that entire life cycle of, of a product. It also often includes not just what we're building, but how we're building it and from where we're building it. And so we'll probably touch on that as we go through this, but in its most pure sense, John's right, it's literally the beginning of the uh, inception of a new product. But as we all know, it has to be built, it has to be brought into a company's uh, distribution centers and such. And so sometimes it encompasses all of that, it really depends on your view of that. So with that, if you want to talk about the roles, John. All right. So part two of that question was really about what, what roles are involved in this product development process. And it can, depending on the company, it can be a few or it can be a whole bunch. So for instance, maybe we just start with a a shirt, a red t-shirt or something. Even before the product itself is determined or ideated, there is typically roles that perform duties to lead up to that new product. So where I get that is there may be a trend person. They're, They're basically coming in and saying, um, these are the colors we're looking at for this season, because every season you're going to have different colors and what color is the new black, right? So the trend will come with, with colors, patterns, 
any types of new products. Maybe there's a new style of how the shirt is to be worn or cut. And from that trend team, you may have other roles that branch off, such as colorist. So they have to worry about getting the new colors and getting color swatches and making sure it's the colors that they want. And they go through all sorts of testing just for the color itself. You may also have fabric teams, which means, okay, we have this shirt, but it may be in a new fabric. So we have to build that fabric and basically test the fabric by itself, as well as trim teams. So the shirt, maybe it has a button or a pocket that has a, a different trim on it. And you've got to basically source those items out. So they're all designing these separate components before the item is even built. And then finally, you may have artists. So if there's art on this t-shirt, they may be drawing the art to put on it before we even know what the t-shirt's going to look like. So once all that is done, that's done well before items are ideated, then you start getting into the core piece of the styles. So you may have merchants and planners who are to determine how many items there are, um, what they are. I need five shirts this season. I need four pants this season. I need so many of these long sleeves, so many of these short sleeves. But they're determining how many slots of items there are. The designers, another role, are designing the actual product. So they're saying, I have this many shirts. I want, like I said, long sleeve shirt, and I want it cut mid sleeve or three quarter sleeve or full sleeve, whatever it is. They're designing what the product's going to look like from an idea standpoint. They're not, they're not doing technical specifications. It's more of the high level. This is what I envision it looking like. Other roles also include tech designers. So tech designers sound just like what it says, technical. They're gonna be putting the measurements to the garment. So the cuff length is this long, the sleeve is this long, the neckline is this long. So they're the ones who really measure the, the products and get it to the, its end state of what it should look like. Then you get into some others. So once the, the styles have been um, sort of built. You have product managers guide the product through its life cycle. So once we have determined we have these styles, the product manager is going to guide it through the life cycle of getting all the tech specs done, all the pictures done, all the, the approvals done. And then you also have sourcing managers who, who actually, once we have the idea and maybe have a base spec of the style, we send it to vendors and the sourcing managers help cost and negotiate the cost of those goods as well as as uh, requesting samples, approving samples, that sort of thing. And they, all these roles could be slightly different by company. It depends on how many of them they have. One person may cover different roles or several roles, and it, it really depends on the size of the company. What maybe wasn't clear to some folks is that the designer that's conceptualizing the product, as you called it, I call creative design. They are just that. They are very creative type. I myself, not very creative, I'm more analytical. And so, you know, what you were talking about between creative design and technical design, you'll almost never see somebody do both of those because they just come from a different world, right? The creative folks are just that conceptualizing things using graphical tools like Adobe Illustrator and other CAD tools, whereas the tech designers are using PLM solutions and others where they're specifying things very distinctly. They have to work together because you can't make a product just from the creative and the tech folks wouldn't know what they're specifying without the creative. But I just find that there's a really interesting interplay there that companies have to have. And it's often 
I find it interesting, fun, and challenging to get the creative and the technical to always understand each other because sometimes they talk over each other or around each other just because they come from different places. And on top of that, they're typically in different systems. Like creative is using, a, for example, Adobe Illustrator. It's very creative-based and how, how they use that system is totally different than a technical designer who's putting in numbers and um, measurements in typically a PLM system. Do those systems right. ever, do they talk well? Do they play well together? Or is it creatives on this side, technicals on this side, and it's... Yes and no. <laughs> it depends on the system. And that, that will probably be a, a common answer on some of these questions. Okay. There are some PLM systems that will allow you to integrate to that, that art system, such as Adobe Illustrator, where you can basically send products from Illustrator into the PLM system for others to start working on. There may be some that have two-way integration. So while the creative is actually doing it in Illustrator, they can select from colors and artwork and that sort of stuff in Illustrator that was already created in your PLM system. So if you have artwork from last season or colors from last season, you already have them and the designer can go ahead and select them. You don't have to worry about creating them again. And then you have some that don't integrate at all. So it all depends on your needs and the rest of the software needs across the business. Right. And I've never met a creative designer that is comfortable in a PLM solution. So the PLM vendors that decide that they want to integrate with these creative solutions do it such that the creative folks can stay in that system, meaning the creative system, yet all their information can be brought in. Whereas most often we don't like having, call it rogue systems all over the place. The world has just come to the place where the creative folks deserve to be kept in the creative system and they don't want to stifle the creativity by making them conform to tell us more about that color, tell us more about that pattern. No, just go ahead and draw it, sketch it out, and, and we'll take it from there, meaning the technical folks, and they'll bring it into the other system. But those systems sometimes talk, like John said, but it's a really interesting dichotomy. I've n really never seen systems where it's just come to become a universal understanding that the creative folks are just not going to come into the, the PLM system. It just, it just doesn't work well. They're not data intensive. We'll just leave it at that. And PLM systems are, are that. You have to really do a lot of descriptives and, and specifications. So, so that's an interesting uniqueness as well between the roles that I've seen. What, I think that's a kind of a good segue to the key capabilities within within the, the systems and the process. What What's key to do this well, to do the product development process well? Well... I mean, there, you know, there's a litany of capabilities that these solutions have, but what's become fairly prevalent, particularly when COVID hit, is the ability to do three-dimensional imaging. And I wouldn't say that's the most important capability, but as we know, people weren't traveling internationally and often the locations where these goods are made are overseas or in a different part of the world from where these brands and retailers are designing these products. And so what the three-dimensional solutions allow is what it sounds like. You can take a rendering of a product. It could be the factory has made something and now they want 
the home office to be able to look at it. Two dimensions are, are fine and there's a lot of resolution you can see, but with three dimensions, you can see how fabric lays over a human and how it would look in the drape as it's called. It also allowed, and not always, companies have become more comfortable approving what are called samples, which is the prototype of a product, doing that without having to travel internationally and doing it with these 3D tools. So they've really, I won't say revolutionized, but they became an imperative and they've gotten a lot more acceptance in the industry because of the, the need back two years ago when we couldn't travel, but now people are seeing and becoming more comfortable going with those approvals without having to go overseas. It also, for those brands that are more sustainability conscious, you don't have to fly people all over the world to do that. It can be done virtually and without you know, green gas emissions. So that was a long single capability. There are a lot of them. I'll just go more quickly over a couple of others. John had alluded to merchants creating placeholders. So having interplay between an assortment or a line planning solution and these capabilities in a PLM solution. Old days, a merchant would say, I want to have 10 long sleeve shirts at this price point or five short sleeve shirts at this price point. And there was not any real interplay connection between those. More modern systems allow changes in one to be reflected in the other. We've talked about the connection to the creative systems, so we won't go into that a whole lot. On the sourcing side, where you're interacting with factories, the collaboration capability to be able to share with the 3D sampling, as an example, there's something I need to change with the specification. So having a way a single source of that information to be entered by either the vendor or the, the home office and, and each see each other's comments is really an important component of building product more efficiently. So that capability is really important. The, the other I would say, and this is newer, but is becoming more prevalent is the visualization of the assortment. In the not so long ago, things were done with sketches and descriptives of a product. It might say, you know, white t-shirt, 100% cotton, eight ounce weight. Like, okay, well, now you can see what that looks like because we have very modern capabilities to do that. But not just that you can see a given product, but you can lay out your whole assortment. You can even think about how a store looks. You can take these images and lay them out either on a line sheet if you're a wholesaler selling to a retailer and say, hey, here's some products that we're offering. Or as I mentioned, you can even lay out sections of a store or as you have line review meetings, as often happens where merchants have to say, I do or don't want this product. These visualization tools are really becoming much more popular and they they don't eliminate the need for some of the more minutiae data that we talked about. But as merchants, merchants are not the most patient of the folks that we work with. And if there's a way to more quickly get to the answer and to do it with visualization, 
and drag and drop, which, oh, I don't want that in this line. I want to put it here. It's a different price point. Those are all really interesting, newer capabilities that bring efficiency. And efficiency is important because the, the life cycle that it takes to bring products to market is usually excessively long over a year. And so if there's ways that tools can make that better and faster and more efficient, that's that's what the market is really looking to do. So I'll pause there and see, John, I'm sure there's plenty of things that you could add to that. Well, you, you, you sort of hinted at one of my biggest things, and that is user, user ability to use the system. And it's not just one product at a time, it's in mass. So some PLM systems allow you to do mass updates easily and some do not. So when somebody's receiving samples or receiving costing and they're doing approvals or rejections in mass, if they have to click one time per item or five times per item is a big difference when you're looking at large numbers of, of items. So that's the one thing I would sure. look at, especially when looking at a system. And Robert mentioned collaboration with overseas. Vendor portal is a must at this point in time. If you don't have a vendor portal for PLM, you're, you're way behind the times. There are some systems that try to get around with it by sending emails to the vendors and then they can respond to that email. It should be in the system at this point in time and it makes it much easier for everybody to see the data at once. And, and one thing that I didn't mention that I know you would agree with, John, so that whole interaction between the merchants, the designers, and the factories, I, I alluded to it taking a certain amount of time. There is a calendar. There's a go-to-market calendar. And the the best-in-class solutions allow you to establish that calendar, build dependencies between various activities, and monitor whether they're on time, trending late, are late, and even do a, a recast of dates if, in fact, you've missed dates. And now, you know, lead times are such that you can't compress it. And so it's going to not, everything downstream is now going to be late. So calendars, time and action calendars is one term people use. That capability for almost all modern PLM solutions and supply chain execution systems is really imperative. We, we talked about some integration with other systems and then creative and technical pieces of it. But you also mentioned being able to kind of lay out the assortment and see it. What ties are there to assortment planning systems? Well, I'll use the word loosely. There are ties. Um, <laughs> and it's an interesting chicken and egg dilemma. You know, what, what comes first? Because often... The assortment planning systems will say, I need, we call them placeholders traditionally in a PLM system. So let's say, again, there's 10 long sleeve and eight short sleeve shirts of various characteristics. Design might, in the example of 10, might design 15 or 25 with the understanding that there's only going to need to be 10. And so... Are they taking signals from assortment planning? Maybe, maybe not. Design, depending on, and this isn't a, a Robertism, but I believe it to be true. Some companies are design centric. Some companies are merchant centric. If it's a design centric company, the designers are going to really dictate what gets brought into the line. Not the number of products, but the what, and maybe the number. In a merchant driven organization, they're much more in control and usually, not always, usually 
design doesn't go and overdevelop. In my example, 20 to make 10, 10 slots. Though that's not always true either. So the, the interaction between the assortment planning and what actually gets designed and then agreed to, there's a loose connection there. John, I don't know if you feel differently about that, but in my experience, it's not as uh, engineered as as some might want it to oh, be. Oh, for sure. Because you're dealing with the planning system most other times, most often, and it's not in the PLM system itself. So you're having to integrate those two to begin with, and they're working separately. So there's not typically a, a good, strong relationship there. Right. I mean, we, we've talked to clients who would love decisions made in PLM to be immediately reflected in in the assortment planning solution or line planning solution and vice versa. There's really good of that if, if that happened, but there's also the potential of knee-jerk reaction where if the merchant decided to increase or decrease the number of placeholders and that immediately got sent to the designers, they might get a little unsettled because of of that. So that's not why those systems don't typically talk to each other. It's more because the companies that are really good at assortment planning are not really good at PLM and vice versa. And so those solutions can be integrated across vendors, but within a vendor, they typically aren't best in class at those systems. So they just haven't been tightly integrated. Okay. What companies and we don't have to name specific names, but what companies are really, really good at, that you've seen are really good at product development? And why are they good at it? My biggest experience is that if a company has distinct roles and the person in those roles know what they're responsible for, it makes the PLM implementation much easier because you can do handoffs in the system and say, okay, I'm done, move on to the next step or some sort of flag to say they're done. It's when those roles are iffy and sometimes they don't, they do this and other parts of business, they do this. It, it, it becomes a little bit harder because you can't train to a specific role and the PLM system isn't going to be, it makes it more convoluted if you configure it one way for this brand or one way for this product type, as opposed to a, a process for a different product type or brand. Yeah. Along those same lines, will often recommend a, I'll call it a project manager, not in terms of implementing these solutions, but somebody to ride herd throughout the season to say, hey guys, there's a task, there's a set of activities that are due next week. I see that you're woefully behind. <laughs> Let's get cracking. Because there's a lot of moving parts, merchants and designers and, and tech and creative design folks, they all work towards the same calendar, but they're, they're working loosely together. But again, if there's not somebody or some bodies to hold them accountable, things fall through the cracks. They absolutely do all of the time. Even with that, things can still happen because, especially in the world we live in today, raw materials are scarce, resources are hard to come by, there's COVID shutdowns in certain parts of the world. But I can assure you that without some adherence to those calendar schedules, it will not go as well as if you have somebody who is in a role at the client or company to make sure that those, those activities are being done in a timely fashion. 
and when they're not having the authority themselves or to escalate to get those remedied because it's it's just often as you kick the can down the road whoever's later in that process if you don't have this overall manager they're the ones that get shortchanged hey look you've only got a few days to be able to cut that po if we're going to get it into the dc and not a best practice but john and i have probably seen this at most of our clients they'll cut a po before a product is fully developed and fully approved and they'll send it to the factory and say, get started, start getting that fabric, even though we haven't finalized exactly what we're building. Because if we don't, we're definitely going to not get into the DC and into the stores if they're a retailer. So there's that whole cascading effect. It's no different than any project, but I think the companies that really look at this as an ongoing project and have people that are managing it that way are more successful in, in adhering to that. And to that point, the calendar, you mentioned it, that is vitally important in order to keep them on track because you can't catch up if you don't have that calendar. Do most modern PLM systems have a solid calendaring functionality to support it? It depends on the system. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing. (laughs) Okay. Um, I would probably say most of the the higher ranked ones have a, a decent calendaring ability, just making sure you have due dates and the ability to see when things are not being completed on time. But it really depends on the client's expectations on how far you want to go down that route of how much of the calendar do you want to build into the system and how much workflow do you want to build into the system from beginning to end? Because if you specify 5 million steps in the system and they're all A, B, C, D, all the way through every step, things get held up. So that's one of the important things to think about is don't overcomplicate your process in the system. Some processes need to happen independently and some do need to happen serially, right? So don't overcomplicate the process. I 100% agree with that. And that is one of the, the failings of certain companies. We tried and, you know, get them to start small in terms of the activities that they're tracking. But to your specific question, Tricia, yeah, as John said, different solutions are better or worse at it. But what's also an important differentiator of of the way the solutions work is the ability to look at more than just a given product. So in in other words, Knowing that this particular product is in this current state and it might be behind or might be okay is is great, but the companies we work with are developing usually hundreds of products at the same time across different categories of product. It could be thousands. If they had to look individually at every product and say, oh, it's okay, great, it would, ne- it would never be a workable situation. So. Being able to bring those summaries in and highlight by exception those things that are running amok or uh, potentially being late, that's a crucial capability. Most, but not all, most have that. And that is really another thing we, we recommend. Start slow or small in terms of the things you're managing and please manage by exception. You'll bury yourself in minutia If 90% of the things are okay, great. Let the system tell you that it's okay and trust it once you set up the tasks right and you're getting the right information fed to it. But when it's not, take action, right? 
understand where those problems are and take action. And the best in class solutions bring that to the fore. You log in in the morning and it says, hey, here's your your problem children, if you will. So I think you would agree, right? 100% agree. So there's some best in class solutions and that's great. We also, in kind of other functional areas, walk into clients and see a whole bunch of spreadsheets, legacy systems that don't talk, don't integrate. Are you all still seeing that in clients? <laughs> more laughter, more client situations. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm never amazed anymore at how many spreadsheets the company has. Even when you implement PLM, they're like, oh, can I exp- export this to Excel? And can I work in Excel? Well, technically you can, but you're sort of going around the system. There may be situations where that's okay. You may want to export and tweak things, but Excel will never go away. They'll always have a spreadsheet for something, but hopefully PLM will reduce the the need for it. Right. And and to your point, it's a fine line between working in Excel and then at certain checkpoints, loading that information back into PLM because that's what the company makes me do versus leveraging the capabilities of these solutions for what they do really well. And so, I mean, there's a couple answers to your question. We have companies that don't have very sophisticated or, or PLM solutions at all. And yes, they use email and, and Excel and they just power through. But once we implement these solutions and we get them to understand the new way of working, it's really important for the organization to really stress the importance of using PLM and minimizing the use of these outside solutions. After the fact, which is one of the things John mentioned, if they want to export it for, we'll call it reporting to Excel, okay, there's other better ways to get information than that, but not as a workaround, right? And all too often, because these solutions are highly flexible, it becomes a workaround and the old way of doing things ends up being how they work. But as I said, then at some checkpoint, they put that information back into PLM. And so the senior people in the organization think, oh, look, we spent lots of money on this and people are using it and it's all working perfectly. And then they hear later that whatever streamlining, that's sometimes code word for reduction in force, that they thought they were going to be able to get by putting these efficiencies in place don't manifest themselves because people are doing what I said working offline and then spending additional time to put it back into the system. And nobody wants that. Are there other implications for when that happens outside of not realizing any efficiencies? Yeah, we, we, I know I do, you know, one version of the truth is, is kind of a, a mantra that people talk about. And the moment you pull data out, you no longer have one version of the truth because somebody does some manipulation well, my version, it looks like this and your version looks like that. And even if the source was the same, it's like the telephone game, right? The moment you get past the next person, it, the conversation has changed. And so, yes, there are, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but there are big implications, right? One of the main reasons companies invest in these solutions is just for that. A common place where, in this case, product information, maybe costing information, who I'm getting the product from and, you know, it's, it's uh, history along its development. It's all in one place, not in John's spreadsheet or my spreadsheet or something the factory has in an email. 
because that becomes untenable to manage. And that's where still a lot of our companies that we work with still find themselves because there's not the adherence. Not that the solutions they have don't enable that to go away. They just don't, from a change management standpoint, they don't enforce it. What other outside of not taking advantage of capabilities or finding workarounds because they're comfortable with the old way of doing things, what other common mistakes or challenges do you see, not just so from a PLM perspective, but just across the product development process? I'll repeat this, but it's overcomplicating the process. And not only does that cause too much manually entry into the system, but there could be too many handoffs, which slows down the process. There are so many things that can go wrong and delay the process if you overcomplicate it. So that's an important part of design during that PLM session is making sure you, you find a logical way to do it and don't put every little step into the system. I had a hard goods customer once that wanted every step. I think we even put bathroom breaks in there for the designer and we went live. And literally within a month, they're like, this is too much. It, it's too huge. Even though we reduced it some during implementation, it was like, it's too much. And they started stripping things out. They eventually got it to a manageable level, but that it was a it was a hard lesson to learn on hard goods, especially because you have such a huge skew count. Another big one I see is too many rounds of samples. You only have so much time in the development timeline. And if you do multiple rounds of samples, you got to count for the travel time for the samples to wherever you're, you're approving them or reviewing them. Some of the online approvals now are, make it easier, but if you go through too many samples, they're, they're not going to be ready. And that goes into the part of the POs have to be cut on an unapproved sample. And then also trying to implement too much change at once. If you try to go in big bang with this and you're changing processes, it's going to be difficult. So that's, that's where Robert's comment comes in about start small, implement some small things and gradually grow your implementation. If you do it all at once, it's, it's hard. Yeah. The one thing I would add, and you alluded to it early on in the discussion is roles and responsibilities. There's so many handoffs, you know, at the beginning, we mentioned, and it might have seemed overwhelming, all the different groups that John talked about. There are literally handoffs, sometimes logical, sometimes physical. Hey, here's a color swatch. It's a physical handoff, right? Here's a sketch. It might be electronic. It might not. All of those handoffs, if it's not clear roles and responsibilities and who does what with it and what happens in certain meetings, I know that all seems silly, but if that's not well-defined, you get a lot of inefficiencies. Sometimes you get redundancies. Sometimes you get gaps where somebody was waiting for something to happen, but it didn't. And it, well, yeah, we're so-and-so was supposed to take that to the next step. And that goes back to that project manager type role, right? To make sure that those things all move. So uh, one of the companies I was just talking to the other day is convinced that their domestic team and their offshore team overlap 20 to 25 percent of the steps obviously that's not efficient and then you end up with different results they don't have a plm system and so this offline right <laughs> new york thinks it's this shanghai thinks it's that doing the same task so since shanghai is probably handing off to another group within Shanghai, they probably win because they're there. They take it to the, to the tail end, but that may not be, and usually isn't an efficient way or an accurate way. So 
roles and responsibilities, not just in this realm, but in almost all realms are really important to nail down and make sure that everyone is clear and what those handoffs are when my job's done and I go to the next step. Last question, and we're almost out of time. We talked about, again, PLM systems and some 3D capabilities and some of the things that probably were made better during COVID because of just nature of not being able to travel. What other innovations can improve how a company manages product development? I don't know if it's an innovation, but it's it's definitely a sweeping trend, which is a focus on sustainability, which I touched on earlier. Having not just that mindset, but now tools to help understand what's my baseline. And it could be as simple in air quotes, what are my greenhouse gas emissions to make this product? What is my water use? What is the electric draw? I mean, there's there's a ton of different things. And so solutions are probably behind in being able to catch up to what uh, organizations are contemplating. I'd argue that there's not a real clear industry-wide expectation of what those things should be other than consumers are saying, I want to buy from a company I feel good about that either has uh, circularity. There's a word you don't hear very often. We can talk more about that. Sustainability. And so the brands react and say, well, we've got to go do that. But what that is varies wildly. And so the software companies, given that the requirements are all over the place, don't necessarily know what exactly to do. But like it or not, this isn't going to go away. And so call it an innovation. There will be innovations in how this works. There are groups, HIG, and they have a HIG index that talks about how on a standard basis, greenhouse gases are emitted for early adopters. That seemed to be an okay model. Now there's a lot of controversy where people are using some baseline models from these organizations like HIG and others and saying, well, here's what our greenhouse gas emissions are. And sometimes they're getting called out on that. And it's like, you know, that's not really true. You use the baseline that says when you source from a XYZ type of factory from this country, here's what it would be. And, you know, be careful, you know, not that it's Dateline, but a Dateline-esque analysis might find that that factory is actually horrible. And if you're using that factory and you really don't know what's being done there, you're going to be exposed. So there's a lot of innovation that's going to come down uh, on this. And what's really interesting to me, most often when we deal with companies on the sourcing side, they're, they're working with the, the factory that's putting the finished goods together. In, in the soft goods area, which we were talking about, we would also likely talk to the fabric mill and maybe where the trim goods are coming from. But now with the sustainability push, it's all the way back to the farm, especially with the Uyghurs and the, uh, the enslavement of the Uyghurs and the cotton source that 20% of the world's cotton is coming from that part of the world. You need to understand and prove now, the U.S. government to import, you have to prove that the goods were not sourced cotton from that part of the world. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's no easy answer to that, but there are evolving ways to do it. And so as the, as the 
legislation and regulations start to dictate it, companies, software and brands are going to have to react to that and and not get caught without an understanding of what their their environmental impact is and how they're improving upon that, which is another thing that might come with the New York Fashion Act. So there's a lot there. There's there's a whole element of innovation that needs to happen and probably happen faster than the market's going to require it. So I'll pause there if you have any questions on that or anything else you wanted to add, John. No, I'm good. All right. All right. Sounds good. Well, this is great information. I certainly learned a lot, as I always do. And I will look forward to having you both on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's a wrap for this week. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, gained some industry insights, and got to know the Parker Avery Group a little bit better. If you have any questions about today's discussion or wish to talk about any retail industry challenges you may be facing, please visit our website to contact us. Please also join our conversation on LinkedIn. Just search for the Parker Avery Group. And don't forget to share this podcast to anyone who may benefit from these insights. We look forward to hearing from you.